My fruit is better than gold, yea, than fine gold, and my revenue than choice silver. I lead in the way of righteousness. And as you begin here, you'll begin, even before now, seeing Jesus Christ here. I lead in the way of righteousness, in the midst of the paths of judgment, that I may cause those that love me to inherit substance, and I will fill their treasures. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills was, I brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. Who else could say that other than than Jesus Christ? When he set a compass upon the face of the, the depth, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he gave to the sea his decree that it, the water should not pass his commandment, when he appointed the foundations of the earth, then I was by him. You see, he's putting himself on the same level as God, the co- equality of the Godhead as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the habitable part of his earth, and my delights were with the sons of men. Now, therefore, hearken unto me, O ye children, for blessed are they that keep my ways. Hear instruction, and be wise, and refuse it not. Blessed is that man that heareth me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the post of my doors, for whoso findeth me findeth life. And shall obtain favor of the Lord. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All that hate me love death. Well, the Bible is very clear that Christ is wisdom. John chapter 1 verse 1, that beautiful gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was with him. First Corinthians 1 verse 24 tells us that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. We could say one of his names is wisdom. The word and wisdom are synonymous. Wisdom's riches are real. Now, we, he uses these uh, allusions to gold and silver and rubies to just catch our attention because that's how we equate wealth. We think of the crown jewels or the hope diamond or money or gold and envision bars of gold and so forth. And so he gets our attention to tell us that Christ is above all of those things and and salvation is more costly than all of that. Remember the pearl of great price? Remember he that finds a treasure in the field? He says, sell everything and buy it. That's Christ. What would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul to a person who thought he was rich and had it made? We see the value of wisdom in verses 10 through 11 uh, compared to silver, to gold, to to riches. Jesus said in in Luke 12, verse 15, A man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. But that's what our world thinks, isn't it? Who has the most toys, the latest toys, the most expensive toys? Who can afford? I, I heard yesterday I was on a flight from California, and I heard a woman say that she had flown to California just to shop on a certain street to buy her daughter's Christmas presents. And she had all these boxes of Michael Coor. She named all these names. I don't know who they are. They may ring a bell with you. Of things that she would brought on the pl- flight with her to take just for her daughter's Christmas presents this coming Christmas. 
And I thought, what extravagance, you know, could you not go to the summit and find something at the, at the summit? But it had to, you know, it was, she had the, she was bragging to all who would hear. I had the wealth and the wherewithal and the means to go here and shop there and see these boxes and these labels, see my stuff. And, and she was wrestling with that stuff. She wouldn't put it under the plane. She had it stacked up in her lap and all. And she was dragging it everywhere she went. And I thought, how pitiful, how pitiful. We see the virtue of wisdom in verses 12 through 13. Wisdom dwells with prudence. They're twins. What is prudence? It's good sense. It's common sense. The Lord gives common sense, doesn't he? He doesn't tell us to do hair-braiding things. A lot of people blame things on the Lord the Lord had nothing to do with. The Lord says that, that things be done decently in order. God's not the author of confusion. And so prudence and wisdom are twins. They, they hang out together. Good sense brings wisdom down to earth. It makes it practical. When you hear the gospel, it is the reasonable thing, isn't it? Nothing else works. The ways of men are foolish. Worshiping an idol that doesn't have, uh, has eyes but can't see and ears that can't hear, that's stupid, isn't it? Or, or searching after religions that have no answers. They, just, they, they have no promise of salvation. Do you know the world's religions don't promise you that you can know that you're saved and that you're going to heaven? There's always a doubt. They never know. You never know when you've arrived, when you've done enough. This book tells us salvation, that Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. A person can have a lot of knowledge in certain areas, but, but lack common sense in others. I, I, I read about a man who was a genius. He was such a genius, he, but he could not put money, this will date you, in a payphone. He, he couldn't use a payphone. He just couldn't figure that out. He couldn't change a light bulb. He could not drive himself because his mind was so far in advance that he would turn before you were supposed to turn. And he had to have people to drive him. He was a genius. Solomon had a great deal of wisdom. For example, you remember, if you read the story of Solomon's life, when he became king, two women came to him. And it had been a, a drought and a famine, and uh, they both claimed the same child. And they said, this woman said, if we kill our child and eat it, then, then we'll kill your child and eat it. And so they were both saying, this is my child, and she's not played fair. It's a gruesome example, but the scripture gives it to us. And so uh, Solomon said, well, let's cut the baby in half and give you both half of it. And the true mother cried out and said, no, no, no. He, he knew who the, who the mother was because she wouldn't stand for that. Uh, we, but he had no wisdom in whom to marry. When Solomon was left to himself and he decided to go his own way, he, he uh, married a woman and made her his queen. He married an Ammonite woman and brought her into, into idolatrous paganism. In verse 12, that, that phrase, witty inventions, I alluded to it as we read the scripture, means all good and righteous thought. To know intuitively. Wisdom gives men flashes of insight into the true nature of people and things. Uh, we, we think of men who have been, it had the, the ingenuity to, in my estimation, the greatest single invention of all time. If I had to put just one thing, it would be the printing press. It revolutionized the dissemination of the gospel and the availability of knowledge and theology to people in their own hands. You know, until that time when people came to church, they, they had to come to church if they were going to hear the Bible. That's why Paul told Timothy, till I come, read you should read the scripture aloud. If they were going to have any, hear any scripture, they had to hear it read aloud. Remember the apostles, when they wrote their letters, they said, this should be read in all the churches. So that's why we give such a prominence to reading of the scripture in our church services. Uh, it is still the most important thing. It's far more important than the preaching, although God has ordained that. The reading of his word. 
And so often that's the most hackneyed thing done in a service, if it's done at all. I've heard preachers just stab at it and, and read over it as if it was a bother. <laughs> Let me get to what I want to say. No, we want to hear the Word of God. We must hear the Word. I think of the telegraph, the phonograph, the automobiles, the airplanes. As I was flying, I heard a man, this old, old man sitting next to me said, what would, what would the Wright brothers think about this? <laughs> he said, I don't think they ever had this in mind. We've come a long way, haven't we? Now we not only fly, going to the moon and all the things that God has allowed men to come up with. God has given the, the, the ability, the wherewithal to figure these things out. That's why when we pray for healing, we thank the Lord for the medical inventions and devices and, and all God can. He got, God gave men the, the ability to come up with those. And yes, we should avail ourselves to the things that are available to us. And we praise Him for it, don't we? But we know that it's God. Is, if there's any healing behind anything, it'll be God that does it because in spite of all of those things, uh, nothing will avail if God is not in back of it. Wisdom deliberately and categorically disassociates itself from all pride and arrogance and evil ways that we see here. I've seen the opposite, and it grieves me that, that uh, some profess to know the Lord, but they have an audacious spirit. I know more than you do. This spirit holier than thou because I know more than you. But, but God's grace and his knowledge only makes us feel more uh, our own inability. We're not sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves but our sufficiency is of God. So, you know, true grace and true wisdom chases away pride and, and those things. To depart from evil is a far cry from hating evil. A person can depart from evil and still love it in his heart, you see. And he tells us to hate it, not just to depart. Oh, we should depart from evil, but you may never enter a bar or a place of, of sin and still desire what's there. You may not do all kinds of things, but in the heart, if you could, if, you, if no one knew, you see, that's how we test whether we hate something or not. And the Bible says to hate sin is the beginning of wisdom, to hate it. Do you know how someone would say, well, how do I hate it? Because there's such a pull, there's such a love for it in my heart. The fear of the Lord. It gives us the hatred of sin. And the reason we do not fear the Lord Thou God seest me, Hagar said, the eyes of the Lord in every place beholding the evil and the good is because we do not avail ourselves to his word. We don't read it. We don't put ourselves under the authority of God's word because the more we do that, the more we see the Lord and the fear of the Lord is ignited in our hearts and minds because the word always points to the Lord and his attributes and who he is and, and we cannot help but to begin to hate sin. And so if there's not a hatred of your sin in your life and you, you worry about that and you struggle in areas, it is directly correlated to your relationship relationship with God's word. Human wisdom urges tolerance, doesn't it? That the word of our day is tolerance. Don't get so in a wad. You know, let them be that. You do this. You do your own. It's truth. Truth is whatever truth is to you. Your truth. <laughs> As if there are individual truths. No, there is the truth. It is found in Jesus Christ. They're not truths, plural. He is the truth, singular. All that's, that's embodied in that. But Satan has peddled this idea that, uh, that and of course, we live, must live harmoniously and we don't bomb people's houses because they do not believe in the gospel. I'm not saying that at all. But there's not a tolerance that, that in the sense that we just like accept every kind of teaching. No, we must teach and proclaim that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Graciously, humbly, kindly, with authority, with power. Humanistic psychology, which is largely taking what Freud said above God's word, 
an, an, an unbeliever, an atheist, an evolutionist, and all of modern psychology is based on his teachings. Those men had cared not one thing about God's word. In humanistic psychology, which does not use the scripture as its basis of counseling, is largely a system of excuse making. It tries to come up with, with terms that, that don't sound depraved and that let pe- lets people off the hook to, to face their sin and their situation as God sees it. Human wisdom, human ideas, addresses the symptoms of evil. Never the root, never the case. As a little boy, my mother farmed me out to elderly ladies who had perfect flower beds. I, I think she had intended for me to learn to work. And, uh, and I remember this particular lady who brought out a, a long forked, tined, two-forked stick uh, prong. I'd never seen one. We didn't use it at our house. But I have them now, and I know what they're for. I had never seen one. She said, take this and weed my rose garden. And so I began to pull, to whatever, what would you do? Begin to pull up weeds, just pull out. I went to, to, I went to town on it. And she, for a moment she came out and she said, oh, no, 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 no. You're not, you're not weeding the garden. And I thought, what do you call this? Look at this pile of nut grass and monkey grass and uh, all that stuff that's all the different kinds of weeds. And she took that, that prong and, you know, the nut grass is just a slender uh, green grass that comes out and if you just pull it off you just pulled off the top what you see it has fr- little fronds that go down several inches down into the uh, soil and there's a nut at the bottom of it and if you don't get the nut out you just you, tomorrow it'll be back there it'll spring up in a day or two you see you have to get to the the nut or the core of it. and that's what people do with sin they just clean it off make it look good for a while tomorrow a good rain a good alabama rain and tomorrow you look what happened there's nothing it's all still here. You have to get to the root of the matter. And that's what God's Word does. Doesn't it? it just cuts right to the root of the matter and says, this is what you must do. Do this and live. Human wisdom addresses symptoms, but never the nature. We are depraved. We're fallen. We're broken. That doesn't feel good. That doesn't make you feel, that doesn't appeal to our pride. But that's the bad news. And you have to know the bad news before you can know the good news. You have to know what you are before you can appreciate who Christ is. You're a sinner and he's the Savior. You're helpless. He is, he is the one who came to give help and will graciously do so. And will take your sin and cleanse it and make you his child. Human wisdom doesn't deal with the lust behind the adultery or the hate behind the murder or racism or whatever it's there. You see, that's the nut, the the kernel, the root that must be dealt with before the fruit of it can be go away. It will just spring back up in different ways. Judges don't sentence people for their evil desires, do they? Yet the heart is where the sin starts. We look at deeds only and deeds... A person, you may not ever see a a sinful deed, but their heart may be controlled by lust or hatred or pride. Wasn't that the Pharisees, the religious people's case in Jesus' day? And he cut to that, didn't he? He said, you just said, thought as long as you didn't kill somebody physically, that that you've not committed uh, murder. Or that you didn't physically commit adultery with a woman. But I tell you, he told them the truth, didn't he? And that's what we must know. And only the Word of God deals with life in that way. Yet the heart is where the root of all sin lies. And so we're not sinners because we sin. We, we sin because we're sinners. A rattlesnake bites and has victim, venom. Why? That's what it is. You can't make a poodle out of a rattlesnake. 
You can't make a pet out of a rattlesnake. I don't care how nice you are to it, how kind. You may give it a satin pillow and give it all the little mice it wants. At some point, you stick your hand in there and that rattlesnake will bite you. Why? It is its nature to do so. It is a snake. It is programmed. It is intrinsically built to do that. And you are intrinsically programmed. You are fallen. You will sin. And your heart is a world of iniquity, the scripture says. Well, what do we do about it? An apple tree is not an apple tree because it bears apples. It produces apples because it is an apple tree. What do we do? We do what we do because we are what we are. And only divine wisdom deals with what we are on the inside. And it begins by hating sin. And a hatred of sin comes because of a love and reverence for the word of God. The word of God is sharp. It's quick. It's alive. It's powerful. Oh, I love this verse. It, it, it takes care of everything. The word of God is alive. What other book can you say is a, a living book? It produces life. It is the source of life. The Word of God is alive. It's powerful. What other, what other book can do what, not because I've taught it this morning, but has shown what I've just said this morning. What other book deals with things like that? There's no other book on earth. It's powerful. It tears down strongholds and, and uh, fortresses that men have built with their own reasoning and pride and sin. And it just it disseminates all of that. It's powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, a laser surgery. And all kinds of surgery today. Unbelievable ways of getting to the root of the matter. But that's what the Word of God, it goes right, it zaps right down to the, to the, the thing, the problem, the sin. Piercing even to the dividing, the laying of open, asunder of the soul and spirit. Now, you can, you can do microsurgery on any part of the body, but you can't operate on the soul. There's not a, there's not a psychiatrist. There's not a doctor on earth. Can, that can divide the soul from the heart and the mind and dissect those things. We can't even tell as, as spiritual physicians where one ends and the other begins. It's all part of the inner man. But the Word of God can divide asunder the soul and the spirit. It can do that kind of surgery. And of the joints and the marrow of the inner man, the real you, it gives those, that analogy, you have joints and marrow and bones that can be operated on, but we're talking about the joints and the bones and the marrow of the inner man. Who can operate on that? The great physician. And those he appoints to use his word. You can take his word and read it. and he, It will do its own surgery on you as you read it and, and hear it. It is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And sometimes those things are hidden from ourselves. We don't even know our own intents. The heart is so desperately wicked. Who can know it? We can't even figure out ourselves. We, can't, we don't even know what, what's going on in there. But the Bible does. And will reveal it to us and categorize it and show us how to, to be pleasing to the Lord. So we see here in verses 14 through 16 of Proverbs 8. That godly wisdom reigns supreme and is noted for its strength and its supremacy. If there's one thing a man must have, he is to, to uh, occupy a position of authority over others. And so wisdom in every in eternity past, we see there in verses 22 through 31, this whole passage is one of the great majesty and mystery of wisdom and the various members of the Godhead are introduced in such a way that we cannot always be sure which one is speaking. They're all one. You see, this is a classic portion of Scripture that deals with the Trinity. The Father and the Son and the Spirit each speak. 
and interact and, and their voices exchange. And we don't, we're not sure who's speaking when. He, it is difficult to tell if he's speaking of, of wisdom or Christ, who is wisdom personified, and we go from one to the other. Colossians 2 verse 3 declares that in Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The Holy Spirit uh, himself is called the spirit of wisdom in Ephesians 1 verse 17. In verse 22 of our text here, it takes us back not just to the beginning of creation, but back before there was, before history, prehistory, before time began. We can't fathom that. That all we know is of creation and the earth and, and the beginnings that the scripture tells us. But here, the Bible takes us back way before that, in pre-time, before there was time. He takes us back before the beginning, and there, before anything, there we find the Godhead. In perfect harmony, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, communing and discussing, as Peter says on the day of Pentecost when he was giving the charges of those who had killed the Son of Glory, the, the Messiah. He, he refers to the predeterminate council and foreknowledge of God. And here we see, we're, we're, we're let in on the, a council meeting of eternity past delighting and enjoying one another. And I want you to know, prideful heart, it was not because God was lonely. I've heard people say God was lonely, so he created us. <laughs> he needed something that only we could give. No, God is ever giving and lavishing upon us out of his pure love. It is a mystery. And I think one of the things that we will wonder throughout eternity is why he ever loved us. Why he ever created us. Knowing that we would do as we've done. You and I wouldn't have gone to such trouble, would we? Such investment, such time, such effort for people to turn against us and to kill us. We wouldn't do that. But God did and does. Dr. John Phillips writes, But we have trouble comprehending an eternity past in the one who had no beginning. Standing at the beginning of time, we behold the vast ocean of eternity. We suddenly realize that time and space are finite in concepts, and beyond time and space are eternity in the infinite. On one occasion, David Livingstone, the famous missionary explorer, took some natives with him on a journey from the heart of Africa to the coast. They had never seen the ocean, and when they first glimpsed the vast sea stretching to the distant horizon where sea and sky merged, they were astonished. We marched with our white father, they said, believing what our ancestors had always told us, that the world has no end, but all at once the world said to us, I am finished and there is no more of me. That is what astronomers find as they probe back into the past. All of a sudden, the comfortable space, time, matter universe says, I'm finished. There's no more of me. Then God steps forward and says, but here I am. Our own little span of time is going to run out. Someday it will say, I am finished. There's no more of me. And God will say, but here I am. If God was there before time began, he writes, he will be there when time runs out. And so will eternity. That ought to be the most disconcerting thought of all to the secular humanist, the materialist, and the atheist. In the vastness beyond time dwells wisdom. Wisdom comes to us as we scurry along our little trails in time and says, Prepare to meet thy God.
Wisdom warns us to prepare for eternity. In fact, that's the great message of this book. You're finite. God is infinite. You're here for a time. It is appointed a man wants to die. Does everybody agree with that? An atheist has to agree with that, don't they? But those conjunctions are so important in the Scripture. It is appointed a man wants to die. But that's not all. It would be, you know, if it's as the atheist or the agnostic says, you just die and that's all. That's as far as they'll go. They believe the Bible, that part of the Bible, if nothing else. It is appointed a man wants to die. Yes, we agree. And then that's all. Man just dies and there's no more. But the Scripture says, but. And when the Scripture says, but. That's for you to take up and take notice for, because what follows is as important as the first statement, if not more. Yes, you will die, but that's not all there is to it. Yes, you will die. This flesh will be deposited one day in a grave. Then what? It is appointed unto Chris Lamb once to die. This I must come to terms with. But... After this, what? The Bible is very gracious in telling us, isn't it? The judgment. When your heart and my heart will be laid bare by that word that does surgery on the thoughts and the intents of the heart. But I did good. I was good. I was a good husband. I was a good son. I obeyed my parents sometimes, as far as they knew. You know, We begin to rationalize. Our goodness doesn't look so good in the light of pure righteousness, does it? I mean... What goodness. Well, these people who think that they, they're going to get to heaven on their works, well, you could shoot holes through that in a, in a New York minute, couldn't you? I mean, I've heard people, so I think that God is going to pile up all my righteousness on good things on this side and the bad things on this side. All of us know which side is going to weigh out. We weight the good deeds, don't we? You know, this is worth 500 points. This is worth an eternity in heaven. And God says that all of our righteousness is... All of it, everything we can come up with, is as filthy rags. Let me ask you what you did when you spilled coffee all over the kitchen floor this morning. What would you do? You got some paper towels and you wiped it up. And as you wiped it up, it wasn't just coffee. There was all kinds of other stuff that you said, well, where did that come from? I just mopped in here the day before yesterday. Look at this. Ugh. Did you Did you wash out the paper towels and... Put them away for future use, or did you put them? We'll use these for lunch today. We'll need some paper towels. What do you do with filthy rags? You throw them away. They're good for nothing. And your very best deed, my very best deed, the preaching and teaching of this lesson outside of Christ is his filthy rags. So, I've got a problem. I'm going to die, and I'm going to stand in judgment. What do I do? Is there hope? See how hopeless man's reasoning is. There's no hope. The good news is that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So Christ took care of that judgment at Calvary. The sins of all mankind were nailed to him there. He paid the debt Eternal death that I deserve to pay, he paid in my behalf. And the Bible says that he who knew no sin, that's Jesus Christ, became sin for us, that that we might be made the righteousness of God. When I repent of my sin and come to Christ by faith, I am given an account that is not mine, a record that I didn't keep, and it's 
pure and perfect and spotless. There's no F's on that report card. There's no marks. There's no, there's no crimes done. Even though justification, God justifies us, it doesn't say we didn't do anything. It just removes it. It takes us away and puts another's account on my account. Oh, wonder of wonders. Oh, marvel that, that Chris Lamb's account is overshadowed, taken, replaced by the account of one who is perfect. That's what salvation is. It can't be earned. It can't be bought. It can't be joined. It, can't be, it, it can only be received as a gift by God's grace. Christ leads us from our own self-righteousness by showing us through the word that we are not of ourselves righteous. We must exchange our unrighteousness, our filthy rags. Who won't, if you threw up on yourself coming to church and you say, Brother Lamb, you're being very gross this morning. Sin is gross. That's your sin before the, the nostrils of God stinks. Not just your sin, your righteousness, your self-righteousness stinks. The best perfume, I mean, this is as good as I can do, folks. I can't do anything else. I washed, I bathed, I combed my hair, I shaved, I put on a suit and a tie. If you required me to look better than I could today, this is as good as I can get. This is all there is to it. I, can't, I, I cannot comb my hair any other way. That's the only way I can do it. I've covered all the spots that I can. This is it. This is the best I can come up with. My self-righteous, my deeds, the best I can come up with falls short. We must exchange our unrighteousness for his, and he puts us on us, our perfect robe. My robes, that are, if I threw up on this suit, I, no matter how good I tried to, 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 to make myself this morning, but if on the way here I got sick and sold it, what do you do about that? You don't just wear it and say, this is the best I can do. You change, don't you? And we must exchange our unrighteousness for his righteousness his righteousness answers the perfect law of god it alone is acceptable to a holy god this righteousness is imputed or put on my account vicariously apart from the works that i've done and not in in spite of the works that i've done it it supersedes it, it bypasses any works negative sinful or positive because none of them will measure up none of them are good enough if we were all standing at the grand canyon trying to jump across how many of us would reach that other side? Some of you young whippersnappers may get a little farther than I could get. But in the, at the end of the day, none of us would make it. The best of us, the youngest of us, the brightest of us, an Olympic broad jumper, the best specimen that you could find on earth would do what? He would fall what? Short. And that's what we do. So this righteousness is imputed to the sinner apart from works, and, and he does it by his word and by his spirit. His spirit breaks down our rebellious and sinful wills. It makes us willing and causes us to submit ourselves to his word and to his way. Verse 21 says, I cause those that love me to inherit substance. Isn't that amazing? I cause them to inherit. And I will fill their treasures. This is a sovereign act of God. I cause them. True riches are, are spiritual ones, aren't they? If you don't believe me, if you have one day to live... What, what, what difference does how much money you have in the bank matter? It may matter to those you're going to leave behind, but for you and your passage, not one thing. It really doesn't matter, does it? Real treasure are things that money can't buy. Salvation, 
as we've already covered, sanctification, the process. After he saves us, he begins working on us to conform us to the image of Christ. Peace. Just go try to buy some peace today. That's what people are trying to do. And they do it through shooting up, through experiences, through all kinds of things, moral deeds. They're doing all kinds to buy peace. Still, when they put their head on the pillow at night, did they buy it that day? And what about tomorrow? Where would the peace come from? Joy. Talk about joy. Joy is not happiness. Happiness is based on what happens. <laughs> joy is that deep-seated gift of God that, that goes above the circumstances. Jesus warned, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. I shared with you, I read about a guy, I think it was in India, who had a, a safety deposit box. He had $40,000 in it. And he left it there for several years. When he went back to get it, the bugs or worms had gotten in it, and, and there was just little pieces of the money left. An uh, apt description of that, that where, where worms, thieves break through, and, and moth and rust doth corrupt. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Ours are, our things are laid up for us, Uh, put away, kept by his almighty power, and he gives us what we need in this life. But it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered the heart of man the things that God has prepared for for them that love him. But God hath revealed them to us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. Christ fills the treasury of our hearts with things that money can't buy, and we wouldn't trade for our souls. Spiritual knowledge and understanding that does not puff up, but the knowledge of God, the knowledge of these things today, how rich they are, how precious they are. Our minds are filled with His grace and joy and peace and our hearts with with the spiritual food that we're feeding on today and gladness and worship. Verse 22 tells us that Christ is the eternal Son of God. Note, the Lord possessed me, not created me. The Son is the eternal Son. Please do not believe that heresy that Jesus became the Son. He is the eternal Son of God. Christ is not a created being. Some of the cults teach, and that's where you can diagnose uh, error. He's the eternal Son, just as eternal as God the Father and God the Spirit. There is erroneous teaching that Christ was the first created being in some moment or period of time in eternity past. And they use the verse, the firstborn among many brethren, but that refers to his resurrection. He's the first fruits of them that slept. All the cults deviate on the doctrine of the eternality of the Son of God. And please know this. This book teaches that Christ is eternally the Son of God. There was never a time when he was not the Son of God. He is the living Word, the eternal Son. He was never created, as John tells us. We've already quoted that first verse in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Wisdom, love, power, holiness, and all divine attributes, all creation is the stage on which God displays His attributes and wisdom, His divine wisdom, and all of its majesty 
is exhibited in the universe. Before time began, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit planned both creation and redemption. And in the wisdom of God, creation was to be the stage on which God would display His absolute power. Redemption would be the crowning glory of His work where He redeems us, buys us back from the slave market of sin, and regenerates us and makes us His own. In a sense, wisdom is Christ. Christ is wisdom in the flesh. If you know everything on earth there is to know, but you don't know Christ, you have a deficient knowledge. You may have PhDs from here to the street and do all kinds of great things. And you may be an explorer, an inventor, a researcher, an entrepreneur, whatever. Without Christ, you're nothing. Verse 23 tells us, I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. This phrase designs the ordination of Christ in his office as mediator. Long before the worlds were spoken into existence, there was the wisdom within the triune Godhead in their various offices of undisturbed harmony and of subjection to one another. And Christ, at some point in the eternal past, was installed as mediator for uncreated mankind. The the foreknowledge of God knew that mankind would sin and would need a mediator and a savior. And he was in existence before creation and anointed to the office as a mediating savior. In verse 24, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there was no fountains abounding with water, further tells us about his pre-existence. Christ is the firstborn of every creature brought forth before any other creature was in in being, whether angelic or human, before the depths of the sea were established or, or how far the sea would go because they were made by Him. Of course He's before them because He made these things. When there was no sea, there was the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Verse 25 tells us, Before the mountains were settled, God the Son was brought forth, ordained, anointed as Savior, Redeemer. By him, verse 30, means with him. Again, denoting his coexistence with God and his relation to the Father. His nearness to him. His equality with him as well as his his distinction from him. He was by the Father when the elect's names were written in the Lamb's book of life. He was with him in the planning, the ordaining of the universe. and, And all the planets and the stars and laws governing them. Christ was a co-worker with God the Father and the Spirit in making all things, the heaven, the earth, and the sea. And we see that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the deep. The the triune Godhead were involved. Genesis 1.26, God, Elohim, said, Let us make man in our image. Who? Let us. God the Father. God the Son. God the Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our image. Who is us? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and the darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Verse 30 tells us, I was daily His delight. The Father loved the Son from all eternity. The delight originated in what they had in common. Their relationship as father, son, their likeness. Christ was the express image of the father, Hebrews tells us. Hebrews 1 verse 1. Same in nature, same in sinlessness, same in his perfections. 
What did Jesus say when he came to earth? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and my Father are one. Express image. That express image is a signet ring. If you put it in the clay, it's the very same image here is here. Jesus Christ is the same you see of God. And the Spirit, He delighted in Him throughout the, the days of creation as co-workers, as they looked forward to the cross and redemption and the, the bride of Christ and His glorious church and the eternal day where He reigns and rules with His people. More than man can number, a host, a myriad of people saved by the blood of the crucified one. There's a mutual pleasure and delight which the Father and the Son have in each other. The illusion as if children playing in the, the, the presence of, of their parents. What a picture of love and enjoyment and delight. And then we see in verse 31, rejoicing in the habitable part of the earth, all the future inhabitants of it, uh, at what they would, uh, had planned for, from creation infinite wisdom ordained where fish would live and how birds would live and, and the conditions that would be necessary uh, for mankind to live and exist. Wisdom ordained it. All their planning and creating was delightful to them. And why? For what purpose? For us. For the saved. And there's coming a day when, when all of it will be restored to its pre-fallen beauty. John tells us in his great revelation I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Why? For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven. We've heard that voice before, haven't we? At Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It's the Mount of Transfiguration. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Do you know where that new creation starts? When you turn from your sin and by faith look to Jesus Christ as Savior. The Bible says we're made new creatures in Christ and old things are passed away and behold, all things have become new. That is the ticket, if you will, for all of this glorious display that John shows us and tells us here. May the Lord bless his word.